I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jean Gonan of Domaine Pierre Gonan in Saint-Joseph in the Rhone Valley, France. Hello, sir. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Very happy to be in New York. So your your grandfather had vines, but they had been somewhat abandoned in his lifetime. Yes. The domain was started by my great-grandfather. And after my grandfather was not in a good health, so he stopped. And when my parents, my father, started after the war to work, he was very young. And he's got some lands, but no more vines, especially after the frost in 56. So he started to plant again, step by step. And he first planted Marsan. Yes, because it, most of the lands he had at this time were located in a lieu named Les Oliviers, and it was a special place for the whites, with granite underneath, but with a lot of clays. So it was very well known for the whites. So he started to plant whites, and after, in the same lieu planted some reds. Les Oliviers is south-facing. It's a gentle slope, and it's not the hardest place to work, honestly. And he started there, and he started to do his own bottling with a vintage 64. And previously, he was selling to the great negotiant, like Delas or Chaputier. And because he's got mostly white, it was not very well known, the whites. And so nobody wants to buy it. <laughs> and so he started to, it was not the first to do its own bottling in Saint-Joseph, but one of the first. I think the first was Mr. Trolla in 56, when the appellation was created. And for my father, it was 64. And they were family friends, Trolla and your dad. Yes, they were very good friends, especially with Mr. Trolla, Raymond Trolla's father, Ernest. They were very close and they were a little bit involved in the syndicat of the appellation. So Mr. Trolla was one of the president, and after my 
father took over the president. So they were very close. So they were there in the early days when the appellation was founded. Yes, because the appellation was founded in two times. It was founded in 56, with six villages around a place named Saint-Joseph. There is no village named Saint-Joseph, but there is a famous lieu maybe the best lieu in the appellation, named Saint-Joseph, but it's only maybe eight hectares. And the appellation was created in 56 with six villages who had the same, or more or less, the same terroir, the same soil, the same exposure. Uh, and after the appellation was expanded at the end of the 60s, and it was not a decision of the farmers to expand the appellation. It was a political decision. So it was completely different. Uh, people expand the appellation quite large. It was all the villages in the appellation. So it's why now St. Joseph is more or less 60 kilometers from the north to the south along the road. Because originally when it was founded, it was about 100 hectare vineyard. And now it's more like 1,300. Um, yes. But at this time in the 50s, it was so small because a lot of the field were, were abandoned after the war. And people start to plant again after the war, but more in the valley part because it was easier, of course. And nobody was thinking that one day the slops will be planted again. But maybe thanks to the herbicides, it's difficult to say, but thanks to the herbicides and thanks to the apricots, because they were selling very well during the 80s. And so people start to replant the slopes because of the money of coming from apricots and, and of course, because it was easier with the herbicides. Because historically, it's terrace slopes and the vines aren't on wires. Yes, each vines has got a, a stake traditionally, and it's not for pruning. It's not pruning on cordon de royat or guillot. It's pruning on gobelet, not exactly like in Beaujolais, but a small gobelet, because in the slopes it's much more easier to work with stake, but it needs a lot of time to tying up the vines and even to prune. But it's much more easier to work. And so what that meant, though, is that there was no machinery, really. There was no option for tractors. It depends where you have your Saint-Joseph. <laughs> if it's in the slopes, there is no option. You can have in some parts, like Les Oliviers, a small tractor like we have, or a horse to plow. But uh, in the slopes on the terraces where you have a lot of walls, you can only plow or you need a lot of hands to help. It's the only way to work your soil. And so you're based in Tournon, and that's next to Saint-Jean-de-Muzot, which is where Trollat was. It's next to Mauve, which is where Chave is. And those villages with three more were the original appellation. The cellar is based in Mauve, but we have just a few very small parcels 
in the slopes of Mauve. Most of the parcels are located in Tournon, not in the original Saint-Joseph, but around in Les Oliviers, where we have mostly the whites, and in uh, Saint-Jean-de-Musol, because we are very grateful to Mr. Trolla, because in 1988, he started to, to rent us some of his very old vines. So we are very happy now to have this vineyard in Saint-Jean-de-Musol. And 88 is also the vintage where you and your brother first did the vinification. I mean, you were there in 86, but... Yes, exactly. We really started with Pierre in 88. So it's a little confusing because your dad's Pierre and then your brother's yes, Pierre. Exactly. And somebody called me Pierre, I never say Jean. So <laughs> everybody <laughs> called me Pierre and Pierre is Pierre. <laughs> because the producer is called Pierre Gonon. Yes, the domain is Pierre Gonon in tribute to my father because he, he, even if it was not the same wine, even if it was very local sales, uh, he did the first. He's got the idea. For this time, he was a, a wine guy. He really believed in the appellation and in the wine, but it was so different at this time. The work, the prices, everything, the knowledge. But he started, so it's normal to, to keep the name. But there was a long historical tradition before the wars and before Phylloxera. Tournon used to be drunk by French kings, right? Yes, exactly. It was a very well-known place for Syrah. For the slops, of course, and you've got some very French author, Victor Hugo, speaking about the Vin de Mauve in Les Miserables. But after Philoxera, everything has disappeared, and maybe Hermitage keeps his well-known because of the power of a big name in Tan Hermitage. But Saint-Joseph was not replanted very quickly. And Philoxera, First War, Second War. So it was much more difficult. And it was local wines. It's so people prefer to plant in the Valley, even not always Syrah. So it was completely different at this time. And Saint-Joseph really started to develop in the 80s. Um, I think the main problem is that in the 80s, everybody was very confident with the clones. So the appellation is, but all the appellations in the North Rhone are planted with clones at maybe 80, 85, 90%. So maybe it's the new challenge now. So historically, there had been maybe different expressions, different phenotypes of Syrah. Like people talk about the Seren or the Petit Syrah for different areas of the Northern Rhone. But then the clonal revolution where people were looking for clean material that could give bigger yield, that really kind of knocked out a lot of that heritage. Yes. And it's why the clones are still successful, I think. It's because despite of this uniformization of the taste coming from the grapes, Every vintage, you have a good hills. And so it's so, for a lot of people, it's really important. And, and now you've got the use of having this kind of hills every vintage. And it's difficult to come back to something a little bit more up and down, depending on, on the vintage. 
like it was before. And that kind of yield also affects land prices, right? Because people expect to make a certain amount of return. Exactly. And the prices of the land are in crisis, so people need to produce a little bit more, and so they are planting clones. And, and maybe not a lot of people are so much interested in, in the... F- Everybody is working well and try to do his best, but sometimes... The appellation is going well, and for some people, it's it's enough. They don't want to do more or to do more research. Or for them, it's it's okay. And I guess that goes back to the idea that a lot of times in the past, this was a, a wine that was sold to negos merchants in barrel or sold to local cafes. So even though where you are there was a royal heritage for this wine. When you get further north in San Josef, there's not that kind of history for the wine in terms of prestige. The production was often cooperative, or if it was owned by a grower, it was sold to Negos. It's a little different. I think if you are doing your own wine, even if you are selling to Negotiant in barrels or, and giving the grape to a cooperative, it's completely different. When you are giving your grapes to a cooperative, you are more or less a fruit producer. So you never see the final product. So it's very different, I think. And in Saint-Joseph, more or less now half of the appellation is still doing by a big cooperative. So of course people are, are doing well, and but that's fruit producer maybe. It was a polyculture region. People grew apricots, they grew grapes. So I bet that kind of mindset lends itself to thinking of it as, I'm growing fruit and I'm going to drop it off at the cooperative. Wine was just a part of the activity. It was as important to have beautiful apricots and beautiful grapes and beautiful vegetables, but it was not more important to have beautiful grapes. It, it was just a part of the business. But now a lot of people are more specialists in the wine. So it's, I think it's better. And that really started with the 80s, right? Like in terms of wine prices going up and exports? Everything has changed, yes. In the 80s, because of the press. Yeah, and because the production was a little bit bigger, so Saint-Joseph was a little bit more well-known at, at this time. It, it's not a bad thing, but Saint-Joseph was increased. In fact, it's a good thing to have a... Some presence in the market. Yes, I think it's a good thing. Now the challenge is that everybody must focus on the quality, on the specificity of the terroir. And there are some, in general, similarities between the north and the south of San Josef, one of which would be kind of east-facing slopes quite often, and often there's some sort of granite, but the age of the granite can differ, right? Yes, so more or less, it's the same type of soil, and I think it's both the expansion of San Josef. It's a quality because you've got different type of San Josef, and everybody can find is type of Saint-Joseph. So maybe somebody wants not an everyday wine, but a, maybe a lighter wine, more fruity. He will find in Saint-Joseph, he will find something. It's not our type of wine, but for the people who want something a little bit more refined or 
a little bit more strict wine for aging, it will find it in Saint-Joseph. So it's a good thing sometimes. And the bad thing is that there is not a Saint-Joseph. There is many, many different sorts of Saint-Joseph. With growers, sometimes I can kind of look at the the village on the address for the grower on the bottle and kind of get a sense of the Saint-Joseph because there's not a system of premier crews and a lot of times the Ludis aren't on the bottle, although sometimes they are. Yes, you can say, but it's very simple and it's not exactly the truth. But in the north, the wine are a little bit more energetic, maybe more spicy. And in the south, maybe they are a little bit more elegant with the tannin for a little bit riper, but it's a general appreciation. Depends on the vintage. But you tend to pick earlier than they would in the north, right? Yes, we are picking a little bit earlier, but we are still in the limit for serum maturity. There is maybe one week more or less difference between the picking in the south and in the north. From my perspective, as someone who has not visited and has not walked the vineyards, it seems like one of the big differences is that when you get down to a place like San Jean de Mouzeau, some of the characteristics that you associate with the soil of Hermitage, like in the Bessar, seem to have come back up there in a place like Santa Pine and that Ludi, where that kind of granite is once again present in San Joseph. And it seems that the river used to not separate the two. And it shifted over time. So the river goes on a different side of the Hermitage Hill than it used to historically. Yes. In fact, at the beginning, Hermitage and Saint-Joseph, near Saint-Épine, Saint-Jean-de-Musol, it was only one, one mountain. And it, it has been cut by their own. So it's the same soil in Bessar and in Saint-Jean-de-Musol. But the main difference, it's... Hermitage is south-facing. It's a real gate in the middle of the valley. And Saint-Joseph is more east-south-facing. And the most interesting terroir lands, I think, are on the slopes where you have a, a small river usually coming from the west to the east, so going down to the Rhone. And so this small river has opened a small valley with south-facing lands, and this part south-facing are the best. Even with a global warming, they are the hottest, maybe, but they are the best terroir. And that would be like Les Oliviers, is that? Yes, Les Oliviers, Saint-Joseph, Lyodi Saint-Joseph is the same, Valley du Doux in Saint-Jean-de-Musol, where you have Saint-Épine, Aubert, they are the best places because it's really sunny, Sunny, and I think light is very important too. So I think there's two reasons why you might be really qualified to speak about some of the Ludis of this area. And one is that your domain has grown over time. You've acquired new parcels, and you currently have them in Mauve, Tournon, and Saint-Jean-de-Mouzol. And then the other is that you don't do the blend until fairly late. So you ferment those parcels separately, and then you blend before you bottle. But it's overwintered. And so I think you probably have a pretty good sense of some of these key historical terroirs of Mauve, Tournon, and Saint-Jean-de-Musol, which theoretically are all granite, but then often there's a different proportion, right? Maybe there's a little clay or... 
two years ago, there was a, a studies about Saint-Joseph, about the soil of Saint-Joseph, because everybody is speaking about terroir, but even the wine farmer, nobody knows the terroir exactly. So there was a very interesting study. And at the end, the geologist who was doing the study said, oh, you are speaking a lot between the difference in Saint-Joseph, but it's more or less granite. The differences are very tiny, you know, in a geological time. And we went to the cellar for testing. And we taste the different soil, the different parcel. And a tiny difference in the soil makes such a big difference. It was the time to realize that, yes, a tiny difference in the soil because of more manganese, because of more, uh, I don't know, makes such a huge difference in, in the wine. And of course, it, depending on the vintage, but every vintage you can feel the same difference. Saint-Jean-Muzol is more salty, less fleshy. Les Olivier is always round, pretty, but not with the same energy. So, yes. A lot of the terroir expression then seems to be about decomposed granite over time. Because you have, like, for instance, Gneiss. And Gneiss is decomposed granite, right? Yeah, very old granite. So it's different because in... Um, a typical Saint-Joseph, like in Tournon, in slopes in Tournon. Of course, you can, if you see the soil, you think, oh, it's very poor because it's really stony. The granite is very hard. But you, you always have some clays in the middle, so where the roots are going. In Saint-Jean-Muzol, it's really different because it's, the soil is older, so you've got no more clays. It's just the decomposed soil. The decomposed rocks will make the soil, so it's like a, a very big sand on the top. Easy to work, easy to plow, but very difficult to maintain because of the erosion. In Saint-Jean-de-Mouzol, you have the Aubert Ludi, and that's the Trollot historical parcel. Yes, most of them, because we were lucky to have a little bit more, and we have replanted some lands, abandoned by Mr. Trolla, but we have a part of the old vines planted just after the war, so grafted, of course, but they are still producing. They are alive, very alive. When Raymond decided that he didn't want to continue and he didn't have any heirs, he decided to sell it to your family because his father had been friends with your father. Yes, and uh, at this time it was a little bit different too. Not a lot of people wanted to. It's not far away, but it's 30, 30 years ago. There is not a lot of people who wanted these vines. And I think the trollers were confident because they know very, very well my father and a little bit less us, but they were confident about the work we are doing. And, and we are lucky too because Mr. Troller, when we changed in and when we start to do organic, he was very happy and he was never complaining about what we were doing and he was very happy to see again a horse in the vineyard, to, to see all the people working hard, howling. And it was interesting for us because for him he's got 
good memories of that time before. So it teaches us sometimes about how to, how, how, what to do. I can see that being really key for you because uh, you actually didn't plan to work at the domain. You had gone off to do some other career, but then your dad got ill. And so you didn't go to viticulture school and you, you hadn't gone to a lot of wineries to taste before you started in 86 to come back to the domain. So I could see having someone to sort of show you some things might be really helpful. Yes, and of course, maybe it will help to go to school and to travel. But for us, it was not our case. And yes, I, I was not the one designed to take over the domain. It was my younger brother, Pierre. But when my father came here, Pierre was still at school, so he can't work. So I came back and I was very young. I was 20. And I always helped my parents. So it was not a new thing, but I was not so happy maybe to, to come back and help. And after maybe six months, my father can't work anymore. And maybe it was uh, easier for me to have not my father, uh, you know. So I start to work a little bit more and maybe more thinking about planting a little bit and uh, new vines and start to cut the bushes. And after when Pierre arrived two years after, at the end of 87, we didn't decide to work together. It was just for use to continue and, and we are still there together. So after 30 years, it's good. At the beginning, when he started to work, my father was doing organic without knowing it was organic and even a little bit much more because he was always pruning or even picking depending on the moon cycles. And But uh, after in the 80s, because he, he was not such in a good health, he started to use herbicides. And at this time, we can't complain about the people who start to do herbicides because for them, they start to work very early. And it was such a good thing to work a little bit less. And they have absolutely no idea about the danger of pollution. So for them, it was just a big progress of the technology. And at this time in the 80s, end of the 70s, even a little bit earlier, everybody thinks that technology will improve everything and everything will be so much easier. So they did right, in fact, even if we are not agree now, but for this time, for their knowledge, for everything, they did right. Now I think it's completely different. Everybody knows the danger of the herbicides, the chemicals, of course about pollution, but about the health, health of, of yourself, health of the workers in the vineyard, health of the clients. So, yeah, I think it's really important maybe not to be organic certified, but to abandon this, especially the herbicide, I think. Herbicides have a problem. And there is another problem with herbicides. It's you change your soil. So how can you speak about the terroir? Because, of course, you, the soil is not alive anymore. 
you kill everything in the soil year after year. But you change the soil because the pH is it's lower because everything so and after you need to use maybe more product in the wine as acid or yeast or I don't know what because the terroir is not alive anymore. So you start a process that you have to keep going with. It's not just one decision. It ends up affecting a chain of decisions for more additions. Yeah, and we, in fact, we knew and we realized, I think, quite quickly that herbicides are not the good things. But it was difficult to change because we have no, at this time, we had no example of people plowing. And so we, we start to leave the grass and after a few years, after maybe five years, we realized that it was a mistake because grass in our conditions, in our soil, it's not for, it could be maybe in some appellation, but not where we are. The soil are too poor, there is not enough hazard, so the vines were suffering too much. And so in 04, after the very hot and dry 03, we have decided to plow and to how everything. So it was a big change, big change because the work, of course, is more tiring, but much more interesting. And in fact, we realized that our real work is not winemaking, it's farming, really. And the rest is so simple when you farm in a good way, in a simple way. It's much more easier. You don't have to do those corrections later. Yes. And you accept the differences, I think, <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but the more you are doing with products, the more you want to correct. And the less you are doing, the more energy you, you put in your work, you accept the differences. And if the vintage is with, a, I don't know, a very low acidity, it will be a very low acidity vintage. And what's the problem? No, it just, it will be different and it will taste different. And we are very lucky because our clients accept that and, and want that. A different vintage every year, a different wine. In a way, I feel like being in San Joseph, there's a little less pressure to make a perfect wine every year. There's maybe less expectation that it's going to be the ultimate wine. Because it's not Corroti or Hermitage. Hey, and what is a perfect wine? The perfect wine is the wine will reflect the, uh, the vintage, of course, and the work you have done or not. Because sometimes uh, you are not doing everything or you, you can't or you didn't have the money to put in the vineyards. Or, so, but it's the reflect of the year and people accept that and ask for that now i think it seems like a great progression to expand in key vineyards but then also have one more person working because you work with your brother so the manpower is twice as much yes and even the thinking is different because uh, each of us can have an idea or something and we will discuss but the decision is quite quickly done 
because we know each other. So, you know, a lot of people when they talk about going on say, well, they have some of the key Trollot holdings. But then when you try Trollot and when you try going on, I mean, they're totally different wines. I hope so. It was never the, the goal, the focus was never to copy Trollot. And Trollot is, is now very well known. But when we took over some of the first vines, Trollot was not well known. So for us, it was just doing our wine the best as we can, but with no idea of, and it's, it's still the case, we have no idea of the wine we want to have at the end. It's just for, for everyday work, the energy we have put with all the workers, because we are not the only one to work in, in the vineyard, of course, we have a lot of people coming, uh, seasonal workers, and it's important that everybody put all his attention, all his energy in his work, and after, the wine will be what it is. It's not something thinking before. Just the inspiration of the moment. It's the same for distemming. Sometimes we distem, sometimes not, sometimes... like. We are distemming less and less, but uh, it could be 80%, it could be 85%, it could be 100% all cluster, but it's just the inspiration. It's not a Brian calculation. Do you find it easier to work with whole cluster as the vines get older? Yes, of course. And I think it's easier to work whole cluster without clones. And we had some clones. And we still have a very small parcel, but the big parcel planted in 88 with my brother. It was the first vines we planted were clones. And we took them off in 2011 because at the end we want to have only massal selection. Massal coming from the old vines, but also we. We are buying some buds to graft, to have more diversity, but we don't want to. Um, because the problem with clones, if you want to do old cluster fermentation, the stems are always greener. The vines are more vigorous. They are producing more. They are more vigorous. And even if the berries are very ripe, the stems are still green. So I think it's more difficult with clones to have the the good stamps. And it seemed like another big issue with the clones was vine age in terms of them losing vigor as they got older. Yes, and it's a problem. Maybe after 15 years, you can see the first symptoms of this. It's not a real disease. It's just that vines are very tired and they are losing the potential of production and it's, it's very important to know that with clones you will never have old vines you will never have 100 years vines and it's a little bit a shame i think and that's a very costly realization to make when you have to replant and oh, then yes, you lose that, course, that time of course especially on the slopes with the walls and everything so but the clones are producing more, so it's why people are, are still planting clones. 
It's a short-term answer. It's a, sh- it's a short time, yes, because you have to think that, of course, you are planting the vines and they are producing after maybe four, six years because we are grafting in the fields, so it's a little bit longer. But you need to wait maybe f- 15 years before the, the wine is more complex. And so you are, you are planting for yourself, but you are planting for the next generation, for them to find some. And if you plant clones, the next generation, they will never farm your vines. They need to replant. And that seems specifically like a Syrah issue. Yes. I'm not speaking about clones uh, in Pinot or because I don't know the problems, but for Syrah, it's really, it's clear. And nothing was really done. So now there is some selection with less dépérissement. Uh, but now we are not confident uh, with clones. You know, it's important to look back to the past, to know why people were grafting in the field, why they were not grafting Omega. Everything is important now to have a long-term vision for Saint-Joseph. And I imagine that you work some differently designed parcels between working those old Trolla vines, which I don't think were in straight rows, and then working things that you've planted yourself. I imagine that those look very different inside the parcel. Yeah, it's, it's really different. I think in the old vines you've got, because everything is designed a little bit like, like a garden with all the walls, because we have removed all the walls during maybe 10 years. So it's like a garden. So it's a very peaceful place. So the, the ambience is very different. And it's why we are building and renovating year after year, but it's a very long job, the walls. Because if you have walls, well done, well built, it's good for the soil because you maintain the soil against the erosion, but it's also a question of farming like gardening, very conscientious, very... So it's it's very interesting to rebuild all these walls, but the it will be a, a never-hand job, but it's nice to do. I mean, I know that your brother does a lot of vineyard work, but it seems to me like you're really attracted to that idea of gardening. And I know that this wasn't originally your planned career. What is it really that draws you back to the wine part and has kept you there for so many decades now? It came maybe step by step, the idea of you can't do quickly where we are. Oh, we don't know to do quickly. We don't know to do fast. We don't know to do big. We like to do small. And of course, it's 10 hectares now, but I think we, we will ne- never know to run uh, 20 hectares. It's not our ambition, or, but our ambition is to have the best places. That's why, yes, it's really important to pay attention to the details because in a lot of vineyards, you can increase your vineyards, you can plant. It's just a question of having one tractor more. You buy uh, more mechanics or you go a little bit faster with the tractors. And uh, where we are in Saint-Joseph, if you start 
and want to increase a little bit and especially working organic and working the soil, you have to think about finding new people, new hands. And maybe it's the more difficult part of the job. It's not the spray, it's not building the walls, carrying the stones. The most difficult part of the job is finding new people, especially for the seasonal works starting in April until end of July, and teach these people how to work, how to to tying up a vine. So, um, but at the end, maybe people are giving more energy on a tractor, and they are paying more attention of the details, and they are coming back for picking. So, it was difficult for them this season because it was maybe it was very hot or it was really rainy. So they will pay more attention during picking to select the good berries, to pick carefully. So it's really important to have these people. And I think sometimes, especially maybe here in New York, the wine farmers or the winemakers are in the lights and everybody is clapping because they are coming. And But we are not thinking enough sometimes to... All these people working hard in the vineyard every year and trying to do their best in the vineyard for the pleasure of the clients. It seems like so much work, but you don't have that fashionable or really prestigious appellation to charge more money for it. And is it a problem? I think for the clients it's not a problem because they have access to very good wines, very special wines, original wines, without paying a fortune. So for the clients, it's okay. And of course, everybody wants to earn more, to have more money. But sometimes, and maybe because I'm a little bit old now, but why are you running always after more money, more money? Of course, it's, it's important to pay the people who are coming to work and to think about the future, to be more secure as everybody. But is it important to have a big car, a big new car, to travel a lot? Maybe not. Maybe it's not the life of a winemaker in Saint-Joseph. Different from a winemaker of Bordeaux or of Champagne or I don't know. But in Saint-Joseph, maybe it's for life. It's working hard and you can be very satisfied with working outside with the physical work. You can have a lot of satisfaction. There's a lot of examples of people who have worked quite late into their life. There's people who worked into their 80s going up the slopes. So it seems like part of the local culture to kind of do that. Yes, and maybe more or less people are even if they are not Catholic, they have a Catholic education. And Catholic education is working hard, but not for um, connection on earth. It's for the future. So maybe people are still have this kind of thing. You need to work hard, and after, it will come. Do you feel that way? I mean, is the spirituality part of it for you? Yes, and it's a question of use of tradition. You work and you work. It's your. Everybody's on earth to do something, and 
some of us can work less or they are not on earth maybe to work and some winemakers are on earth to work and physical but it's good it's not um, an issue it's not a problem i think it seems like there's a real sense of directed refinement at going on that i think you take some pride in right every few years you guys have made a refinement to what you do and when you look back you're happy about that am i reading that correctly yes we are very happy with what we are doing and it's it, it's not doing wine is it's not fun it's not exactly what now you can see on the the social media where everybody's going to peak uh, listen music drinking beer no for us it's not it's it's a serious job even during picking it's it's not a party it's a serious thing but you could be happy and serious i think uh, but it's not fun that's a great statement i love that about being happy and serious i, I think you will fit it in the wines they are not easy wines they are not charming wines they are a little bit more deeper and more serious but you can have some pleasure with them uh, i hope so in some ways i feel like what i'm waiting for with a gonan red is for the granite impact to lessen and for some of the smaller fruits to come out for us our wines are not fruity sugary in sense of fruity, ripe fruit. They are most salty. Maybe something like anchovies or tapnad, black olives. They are salty wines. They are not charming and sugary. Maybe it's coming especially from uh, Saint-Jean-de-Musol, where the Gneiss is. You've got this kind of saltiness. and In fact, the blend is always made with some wine from Les Oliviers, where we have most of the clays, so the wines are always gentle, very generous, ripe. And one of the big part of the blend is from Tourneau, where maybe you have a more classic Saint-Joseph, a lot of flesh, good structure, but the wines are still drinkable quite early because they are open. And after the third part of the blend is Saint-Jean-de-Musol, and Saint-Jean-de-Musol is completely different, maybe because of the age of the vines, but also because of the gneiss, and the wine are more, uh, maybe more refined, but with less flesh, uh, more on the structure. It's not full-bodied wine. And I guess that's the difference for me between Gonan and Trolla. When I try the wines, the Trolla wines don't seem as big and dark as the Gonan wines. And it's normal because Trolla was, it was a single terroir. For us, the terroir is more complex. It's why we, are, we really believe in the plant, because each part will bring something in the final. And of course, everybody wants the oldest vines because the oldest vines, they are coming from Trolla and blah, 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 blah. But I think it was less complete than a blend. So you make three reds. Yes. So the Il Ferre is a vent pays. It's coming from the Saint-Joseph area, but we have two parcels on the flat part near the valley. And so 
it's not a terroir. They are good soil, deeper soil, very well exposed, very sunny. So the grapes are always very ripe, but it's not Saint-Joseph. So we are doing Il Ferré and in the Il Ferré, we put also all the youngest vines until they are more or less 10 years. And after we are doing the blend, so this is our wine, Saint-Joseph, and sometimes some vintages we are bottling one barrel of the oldest vines. A little bit uh, a tribute to Mr. Trolla, but it's only one barrel, it's not every vintage, and it's just something different and to have um, a little memories from the Trolla's wine. And when you say a barrel, what kind of barrels do you use? We always had the Demi-Mui, 600 liters, so bigger barrels. Never new hook in the blend. The, all these barrels are between 5 to, I don't know, maybe 25 years old. And we don't like the new hook with Syrah, especially at home. Because the, the saltiness we were speaking is not going well with sugary or a new oak for vanilla. So we prefer to have maybe more simple wine, but the wine we like. It's why we have only the Mimi. And the whites are fermenting in burgundy bowls. And you do a mix of punch down and pump over. Yes, everything is done in open tank. And we are punching down twice a day. So a little bit harder at the beginning because it's all stamps usually. So it's a little bit hard and you, and you need to have a juice quite quickly. We don't like when the tank is full, the grapes are waiting and fermentation starts very slowly. We don't we don't like that. So we want the fermentation to start quite quickly. So we make pichage, strong pichage, twice a day. And when fermentation is finished, the pichage are very smooth. And we are pumping over during fermentation. Fermentation is usually eight, nine days. It's quite quick. And after, during maceration, we stop the pumping over. And you do delestage or no? No. We tried to do some delestage a few years. And what is the difference? Difficult to say. Is it better? Is it not? And I think we do what we know. And it's enough. The more simple way, I think the best it is. What's your approach to lees in red? It's a little bit like the whites, in fact. When the wine is finished, so when we want to rack the tank, we blend the, the first wine and the pressed wine straight away. We put in a tank for one day, 24 hours, just to sediment the biggest sediment. It's the same for the white juice. And after we rack, put in barrels, and the wines are staying in barrels like this on the lees all winter. And at the end of winter, we rack the barrel, we blend the wine, we make our final blend, 
and we clean the barrels and it's coming back in the barrel until October, until the new vintage. And so that's a pretty extended amount of time on the lees. And are you doing that so that you can add less sulfur? Yes, we are not doing no sulfur wines. We are always using sulfur. And even if we pay attention to that, because sulfur is something that you have to pay attention because it could be a very good thing, but it could be a very bad. But for us, it's important to have no sulfur. And it's easy to have no sulfur during winter because of the condition, because of the temperature in the cellar, very cold. And after, after the racking, we add some sulfur to stabilize. And after, sometimes we add a little bit just before bottling or not, depending on what we want. How is the vintage? How is the pH? And but I think we have a big responsibility, and it's difficult to do good wines without sulfur. For us, it, we don't know how to manage that, so we are adding some sulfur, and it's also because if we want to do without sulfur, we know that sometimes it will not be as good as we are expecting. And it's difficult because you have the responsibility of the people who are working with you. And the sulfur helps to have maybe something more constant. So you can sell every year, so you can employ the people every year. But if you have no wines, you can't pay the people and they are waiting for their job every year. But it sounds like you don't rack that much, really. Once at the end of winter and one more time just in October, when we put all the barrels together in tanks to prepare the bottling at the end of winter. And I think that's probably plays into the somewhat slow evolution in bottle. Because I think if you had, say, racked four times, yeah. when you bottled it, there would be less reduction, the wine would show more earlier. But they will be more gentle and more charming earlier, so it could be a good way, but for us, it's not, yeah, sure. And it seems like you top up pretty regularly. Do you regularly yes, top up? Yes, it's once or twice a week. Because sometimes you you have not to forget the very simple things, but essential things. Topping, having a cold cellar. It seems to be stupid sometimes, but it's really important. When you have a cold cellar like that, does that mean that mallow takes longer? It depends. Honestly, it depends because we have more and more maybe warm vintages. So we have less acid. So mallow lactic are going on quite quickly. And it was always the case at home. We never have malolactic for the reds in spring. They are always done at the end of December. When you look at the drinkability of Ilfere, the Saint-Joseph Rouge, and then the Old Vine, it sounds like obviously you drink the Ilfere kind of on release, and then you wait a few years or a lot of years for the Saint-Joseph. But what do you do with the Old Vines? I mean, when do you start to drink it? I think the Old Vines are drinkable quite early too uh, because they are always refined and 
even if the old vines have more tannin, more structure, they are more integrated in the wine. So it's not this kind of tannin that sometimes you can have in the St. Joseph coming at the end of the mouth and a little bit drier. In the Il Ferré, of course, you've got the sensation of tannin, of structure, but it's all along the wine. But the main difference, I think, is in aging. The old vines are aging very, very slowly. So you have always this kind of freshness from the beginning. So maybe you can drink them starting at eight or ten years old. But you, we are doing this special bottling since '06 only. So it's too early to have something very clear. What are your thoughts about reduction with Syrah? For us, it's important during winter to have reduction. And after the racking, of course, in spring, you can feel that the wine are a little bit more open. And, but you, you will have sometimes reduction coming back before summer. And I think it's really good during summer to have a little bit more reduced wine. After, if the wine is reduced on the nose, it's never a problem. If it's reduced in the mouth, could be a little bit more difficult after summer to take it off. Maybe the racking will be a little bit more stressful for the wines because it's a little bit harder. But a small reduction during summer is very important. It seems like the reduction in the blend is very well judged. It seems it's a very refined sense of reduction when it's noticeable. I hope so, but it's not our fact. It's the wine with reductive in this way. It's because of the work we have done before, but it's not something that we have defined. And we don't want this level of reduction. The wine is reduced like that at this level. So do you see, before you do the blend, do you see like different soil compositions give different reduction or... Yes, it's more of a soil. Les Oliviers is very rarely reduced, and the slopes of uh, Tournon are always more reductive. The old vines are more refined, and I will say never reduce. They are always good to taste during the winter, but the part of Tournon is reducing more. It's why, if you want to drink them young, I think you need to decant the wine. So uh, even 12 hours before drinking that, it will be always better. And not only for the reduction, for the nose, but also to integrate it a little bit more of the tannin in the wine. So what do you think about granite as a soil? What do you think granite provides? I think granite maybe is a little bit more difficult because Granite is very hard, very poor, full of iron. The vines are stressed. So the challenge when you are working such a, a soil like granite is to maintain the level of stress a little bit lower for the vines because you can have very poor production if the vines are too much stressed. And that's why you need to plow. 
Yes, exactly. So plowing is our thing. <laughs> so about the white, you make three. Ilfare, you make the San Josef white, which is Marsan Rusan, and then you make a Shasla. Yes, we are doing a Shasla, but it, it's more well well known here in the US than in France because <laughs> but Shasla is something special and I think it will be done one day because the vines are very old. They have been planted just after Philoxera, so they are one hundred and twenty more or less. And it's the end. Year after year, the production is lower. And they are located in Saint-Jean-de-Musol. It's four small terraces in the middle of the red old vines. But we like to do it. It will never be a big wine like we we like with Marsan or Roussan, very rich. But it's something from the past. And when it will be done, when we, we will take them off, it will be replanted with syrup because it's it's the past and the soil, this terroir is very good for the reds. Do you think in another time that the Trolla family was blending Chasala with the Syrah when they made red? No, I think never. No, no, they, they were doing uh, some wine with the Chasala blending with the whites, but it was not blended in the in fact, people were planting chasla to have an earlier money because chasla is very good to eat since the middle of August, maybe, usually. So they can sell the grapes to the market, and it was the first money to come uh, at home. And after all the rest, not sold on the market, went in the, um, in the wines because Marsan and especially Marsan, but Marsan and Roussan, they have small berries with a thick skin, so not a lot of juice. Uh, Chasla, thin skin, big berries, and a lot of juice. So it was interesting for that, I think. People were thinking about production. They were not thinking about adding some acidity, adding some to have more finesse. No, they want to have grapes because the problem is Syrah or Marsan, the production is up and down, as we said a little bit earlier. So for them, maybe having some chasla, a little bit more juicy, it was very interesting for the whites to have a more regular production. You said that Marsan and Roussan, the berries are smaller, there's a thicker skin, but how would those two differ from each other? How would Marsan and Roussan? Your whites mostly Marsan, right? Mostly Marsan, because we think that Marsan is the great variety. A lot of people think that Marsan is doing very heavy, very boring wines, but we think that Marsan is the best. Uh, of course, everybody loves Roussan. Roussan is so gentle, always very ripe perfume, peaches, so refined and always open. So everybody loves Roussan, but Marsan has got the power. Marsan is always a little bit more reductive, too, in barrels, so a little bit more difficult to understand. But Marsan is very real wine, I think. You have vines from the 50s, right? Yes. Uh, so in average, the vines are 40 years old, and it means something for the whites, because we have not very young vines, but for the reds, it means nothing. 
this average because we have planted a lot of vines. So they are between 10 and 25 years old. And we have a lot between 60 to 90 years old. I mean, that seems like one of the secret weapons of going on, just the vine age. You know, so many people just don't have access to that kind of vine age. Yes, it's, it's why we are really lucky and grateful to the troller because I don't know, maybe they are one of the oldest vines in Saint-Joseph. I don't know every vineyard, so I, but they are one of the oldest. And these vines are a real treasure because we can make some selection for regraft with these old vines. Not only a question of keeping the past, but thinking of the future. And it's important to have them. In terms of uh, the Marsan-Roussan blend, do you also ferment that in cement, or do you ferment that in tank? Or So the grapes are pressed immediately. They are not distemmed, nothing. Uh, it's a gentle press, quite long, four or five hours. And after we put the juice in a tank, everything is blend. So if we pick in one time, everything is blend. Sometimes we pick in two times, so we have two blends, but usually we have only one blend of juice. The juice stay in tank for 24 hours, very refreshed. And after it, the juice is going direct in barrels, we are topping the barrels. And when it starts to ferment, maybe after eight, 10 days, we take some wine off to leave the fermentation going on. and. That's it. Sometimes one batonnage to help a little bit the heat, especially at the end of fermentation. But the whites stay more or less 10 months, 11 months on the lees. No racking for the whites. Did you see a different quality of lees when you moved to organic? Or? It seems that the lees are not so reductive. But Everything depends on the vintage. So sometimes it's just an idea you have. But if you have this idea, maybe it's true. <laughs> but it's difficult to compare because you haven't got any more of this from the uh, organic farmers. Sometimes they said, oh, I've got stronger grapes now with organic or biodynamic. And for us, it's the opposite. We think that the grapes are more fragile. The skins are maybe a little bit thinner. So for us, it's, of course, it's, it's more difficult, the um, rainy vintages, you know, because the, the rotten is coming maybe a little bit more quickly. But in fact, the quality of this more fragile grape is that you know exactly when you need to pick because they are more fragile. So it's the end. You know, sometimes, I don't know, some vintages like 12, 14, it was not a very high degree of alcohol, but it was ripe. It was the end. It was done. The skins were so fragile, so thin, that it was not rotten. It was just the end. So I guess that would change the kind of phenolic presence on the palate. Yes, and maybe the, we don't need to extract a lot because we have this kind of grapes, this kind of berries. Everything is going away on its own. 
naturally. What's the aging curve of that blend? When do you drink it? I, I think it's a little bit the same process for the white and for the reds. You can have this very early drinking, maybe a little bit earlier even for the whites, because usually we are bottling the whites in November, December. So in spring, they are open after six months of bottling. They are never summer white. They are too rich to be drinking during summer. But after bottling, spring and the next autumn, the wines are open with a lot of fruit, so they can be drunk at this time. And after a little bit like the red, it will be closer, or sometimes even you can feel like oxidation a little bit, and you, you are a little bit worried. But after four or five years, uh, something happened, and the wine is losing its fatness, its big cheek from the beginning, and they are more mineral wines. So people said, oh, there is more acidity with aging. No, there is not acidity. It's just a, a feeling of acidity, something a little bit more mineral with the age. So at this stage, the wines are more interesting, I think, with food, hot food, a little bit rich with mushrooms, cream. They are made for food. I think all your wines are, honestly. Yes, even the red, true. Maybe because we like to eat. And the wine for us is a part of the, the meal. It's not a tasting thing. It's really a part of a, of a meal. That aging curve on the white is kind of reminiscent of what I think of as some great white Hermitage does that, where it kind of goes down for a little bit and it uh, comes up back exactly. different. It's the same evolution. Les Oliviers is really similar as Les Roucoules in Hermitage, so the, the type of soil, the exposure. It's different. I don't want to compare, to, to, but you, you can have the same feeling sometimes. But a great white Hermitage is a little bit more oily, and you have a, maybe a more texture on an Hermitage than in a Saint Joseph. And you look back over the span of vintages since 86, when you got back to the domain, what are real standout vintages for you? Maybe not because they were easy, maybe because they were hard, or, mm. but what do you really think about? I think that in 90, we had a very good vintage. Very good, very easy. And it was the vintage we realized that we can change something to have better wines. Maybe during a few years, looking after my father of the vineyard, we were just doing a little bit more by tradition, by habits. And this vintage, 1990, was so good that we realized that, wow, it could be that. And so after that, we always tried to improve. Of course, with our knowledge, with our... But we tried to improve to have better wines. And step by step, but yes, some dates were more important. Like in 2001, we separate the flat part, the wine coming from the flat part to do the hill ferry. 2004, we plow everything. Or six, we had more old vines. So suddenly, in average, the age went up. So step by step, we try to improve. It really seems like you're in a good 
place, both for the domain and for you personally. Like you seem like a happy person, like content. Mm. And so it's 2017. What are you thinking for the next 10 years? What's the plan? It's your choice to be content or not. You can be never happy. And sometimes it could be a good thing because you will improve your life if you're never happy. For us, it's a little bit different. I think it's coming from my father's family. Uh, they, were, they were content with nothing. But after, for us, the next challenge, I think I've got a nephew. He's turning 20 years old. He's very interested in, in the wine, especially the farming, the organic farming and everything. And he will come to work with us. The next challenge, we are both working together since so many years that we have to to make a little place for this young guy. And it will be the next challenge, I think. And after more technically, maybe it's, we want to keep a little bit more of the wine before selling, but it's a little bit difficult because we... We are only the second generation and uh, we need to sell our wine to continue. But yes, it will be a good thing, I think, after bottling to keep the wine maybe six, eight months before selling it. But for that, we need to build another cellar. And so. Jean Gonan feels that contentment is a choice and so is wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me in your show. Thank you. Jean Gonan of Domaine Pierre Gonan in Saint-Joseph in the northern Rhone of France. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap, are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. Before I conducted this interview with Jean Gonan, I read The Wines of the Northern Rhone by John Livingstone Learmonth, and I also recommend that book to you. The Wines of the Northern Rhone is a tremendous resource and maybe one of the best books ever written on a wine region.